The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. Well, welcome once again. Nice to take a minute just to appreciate being together. If you want to turn on your cameras for a minute or two, you're welcome to do that. No obligation, but let's just look at each other. Say hello. Yeah, use the chat. That's great. I haven't really taken the names of people. There's no camera on. Just appreciate presence. And presence from all over. Not just Minneapolis, St. Paul, but all over the world, zooming in to hear the Dharma, to practice cultivating a kind and generous heart. It's become a practice that I really appreciate. Knowing that there's goodness spread all over the world you know, evident by people showing up here to cultivate a good and kind heart. Not a small thing, right, to, to notice that. So tonight I'd like to talk about going for going to the Sangha for refuge and just some reflections on relating to the the third and important refuge of Sangha. And often this third refuge, the third of the three jewels, gems, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. These are the three refuges. And it's often the third that gets a little less press than the other two. It's a bit underrepresented here. And yet one of the three jewels. Often Buddhism and convert convert Buddhist communities like ours. What does it mean to be a convert Buddhist community? Well, Buddhism Buddhism originated in Asia and then migrated all over the world. And as Buddhism moved from place to place, as people practiced and moved the practice from place to place, Buddhism takes on, took on, takes on aspects of the cult cultural norms of that place and environment. So here in the United States, we didn't, Buddhism, we weren't a, an, an Asian country where people practiced Buddhism as a way of life, but we have learned about the practice and we have converted some of us to the practice of Buddhism through 
the generosity of others. And it would be hard to say all of that without acknowledging our Asian siblings who've been here in the United States for so long, well before our beloved teachers, Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg um, came back from Asia and started teaching. And most of many of the Japanese Buddhist elders and teachers um, were were um, held in concentration camps and during the Second World War and really decimated many of the uh, the communities. So that's part of our history too as practitioners. We we're part of the lineage of Western converts here that includes that reality. And we live and breathe, we breathe it every day, don't we? Because history is never just in the past. It always has, uh, you know, it's karmic. It has its karmic imprint in the current moment of time too. So going for refuge, you know, I've talked a little bit about refuge the last couple of weeks. Going for refuge, refuge as a verb, going to the Buddha for refuge, going to the, going to sensitivity for refuge, trusting in this heart that knows how to connect and be sensitive as a primary force of how we live our lives. And that's what we might call going to Buddha. We can take refuge in this historical being who lived and practiced and experimented and did radical things so that we may benefit from the teachings now. So we can honor this historical person, the Buddha, as one way of going for refuge. And in doing that, what we're, what we're doing is acknowledging the possibility of, sense, of taking refuge in the sensitive heart right here and now. So going to the Buddha for refuge and Buddha knows Dhamma, right? The sensitivity of this heart then connects with the truth of the way things are. And so Dhamma, we might, we might call nature. When we connect with the truth of experience now as lived through this embodied existence that we're all with, then we, we start to understand something deeply. We connect with the nature of emotion and we see something about emotion and learn how to not take it so personally. We learn that emotion is a force of life, right? For everybody. We learn that all experience comes and goes, for example, right? This is the depth of the Dhamma. Going to Dhamma for refuge is really going to the depth of what we might feel when we connect with nature. Oh, this is not, this is not stagnant. This experience is not the same in every moment. What I might call fear or anger as an example is not the same in every moment. It's hard to call it a thing even because it's so varied, right? It peaks and it wanes. 
it brings heat and then a bit of cooling and in moments. And so when we understand nature, we feel the depth of Dhamma, right? impermanence, that and misunderstanding change, misunderstanding impermanence then causes problems for us, right? This is what we might call dukkha. So the three characteristics are represented here. So when we misunderstand that, ah, oh, this keeping with emotion as the example that I'm using here, when I misunderstand that fear is just coming and going, it has a birth and a death to it, right? It emerges on the scene and then dissipates. When I forget that and think I'm a fearful person, right? Then I sort of cling to fear as a thing. And now I forget in this moment that actually the, it's so varied. The actual lived experience, the embodied experience of fear is so varied. This is the misunderstanding that causes suffering in our hearts, the internal experience. And so, the, so take, so the Buddha taking refuge in Buddha that knows Dhamma, since it, the sensitivity, the sensitive heart, how valuable it is. And it's so valuable that it is worth actually bowing to, right? Like, wow, this is more important. This heart that can be sensitive, that can remain sensitive in the face of great difficulty is really trustworthy. So we learn this about going for refuge. And it's through the sensitivity that we start to learn. We learn about the nature of experience. We learn about, we learn how to love each other here, right? Because we learn that we're not so different and that our karmic habits are all tied in each other. Just right now, we're a global community across the whole world represented here in this little Zoom room, right? So our learning is really intertwined because we're all benefiting, right? And we're all contributing to our collective well-being right here in this moment. So Buddha that knows Dhamma and is connected to this web of causality, this web of karmic reality, cause and effect, right? The, the beauty of this wondrous moment where we all show up here at common ground and then take the show on the road, right? Take our learnings back into our own communities. This is the beauty of Sangha. So the Buddha, knowing Dhamma and refuge in the interconnectedness of all things is what we might call Sangha, taking refuge in Sangha. So taking refuge, as I've mentioned, I think last week and maybe the week before can be a kind of orientation for us. And I've been really uh, decided to talk about refuge over the past few weeks because it's been such a useful practice over the past couple of years for sure. But for sure when all when all else fails, right? When I don't know what to do, when life feels really complicated, which is often these days for all of us, then to remember like, oh, it, it really is trustworthy for this heart to care. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to, how to move, how to talk, what next action to take, but it's really trust where this heart that can feel, 
is really trustworthy, that's taking refuge in Buddha. And it's because I've learned over time that valuing sensitivity then often points to something deeper. Like, oh, this is really hard. It's really hard to open to the truth of change. It's really hard to open to death, for example. It's hard to not want to have control over things that I want to have control over, right? Oh, that's, that's dukkha. So we learn right here in this moment of taking refuge. And so as an orientation, it supports living, has supported me in living in a meaningful way, especially during hard times. To orient in the direction of something that's reliable, something that's sustainable. You know, it's never going to get old to trust sensitivity. It's never going to get old to trust change. It's never going to get old to remember that we're all interconnected. That's always going to be a value, no matter what, no matter what's happening internally, externally, that's always going to be important. So I know that, right? And I can go back here, right? when things are hard. So as an orientation to live life. And it can also be refuge. Going for refuge can also be a way of, and this is one of the important things I've learned, is that a a sign of mature practice, maturing practice, not like a destination, but a, a sign of maturity in practice, and Ajahn Tanisaro, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, Ajahn Jeff, says this about going for refuge. He says, the act of going for refuge marks the point where one decides to take the Dhamma as the primary guide to conduct, to conduct in one's life. It means that one's relationship to Dhamma practice has matured from simple involvement into a commitment. And I I love this, right? This, because it is deep. It is, we we go for refuge in so many ways. I was just in the sit watching the planning mind arise and the kind of, um, uh, how, how vivid the planning was in the mind. And then other experiences were sort of in the background, but the planning, the thinking was, potent, right? Right up front, like, oh, and I could feel that pull to take refuge in a plan, right? (laughs) This is really important, sweetie, to plan this right now, right? Instead of just resting in the reality of change. But because there's been some momentum and understanding refuge, the mind was, the heart was willing to see that. And actually, this, the word refuge uh, is translated from a word, uh, I think it's retina or something like that, which means that which increases the light. So going for refuge is associated with a kind of uplift of the heart. Right? It's satisfying to let go of false refuge. It's satisfying to remember that even though this mind and this body needs to plan in order to do life, the kind of relentless planning 
isn't the most sustainable force in life, right? That actually trusting the sensitive heart that can connect with the, um, the elusiveness of thinking, right? Is actually a deeper kind of refuge. It, it was a relief to recognize that it did feel good, right? There was a bit of delight in that moment. And this human life we're living has a lot of dangers, right? We're living, we're living in a very difficult situation as human beings. Our lives are fragile, both internally and externally. And the internal dangers are the dangers of greed and ill will and delusion. So going for refuge is a way of finding a kind of protection in a deep way, a protection from the seeds of greed and ill will and delusion, right? being willing to really trust sensitivity when everything is pointing me in the direction of not doing that, right? And especially when we're experiencing something that's not pleasant, the mind will try to convince us that it is more it is more trustworthy to actually get the hell out of here in some way, right? To do some planning or fantasizing or whatever it is to avoid feeling, to avoid trusting sensitivity. So the maturity of going for refuge, the maturity of practice really is about finding a, a release from the neurotic habits of clinging of constriction, of greed, of ill will, of delusion that pull us all around individually and culturally. In the collective, every habit, every social reality, every habit in the collective, every bit of momentum, every force is, is contextualized. Right? So contextualize and a way to understand some of the context is by understanding, you know, this is the way the Buddha taught, by understanding the mind and the seeds that the mind lays down and what they contribute to both in our own lives and in movements. And in the Satipatthana, the, in the, this um, really important Sutta, where the Buddha is teaching us how to practice. I mentioned this last week, another aspect of the, this teaching, that the, the Buddha says, the Buddha instructs us to remain focused, ardent, and alert, and mindful. Focused, ardent, alert, and mindful. And this word ardent is really an interesting one. It's often translated to mean something like um, energetic, passionate, intent, but it also has a meaning that is full of feeling. So ardent, when the Buddha says practice, remain focused, ardent, alert, and mindful, that full of feel feeling can have a devotional aspect. So when we practice going for refuge, 
we really we can really practice sort of bowing down if you will to all of the expressions of greed and ill will and delusion right and trusting that the sensitive heart even when it doesn't feel even when it doesn't even when the mind wants to convince us that it's not the way right to to be sensitive in this moment because it's too painful or too confusing that even in these moments we can bow down to the complexity that manifests in this heart in this system in this family in this community and the collective and we can understand why it's so difficult to take care of ourselves and each other right oh it's so hard it's so hard to be a human being to wake up to these truths is really complex and think about the kind of dedication that we all bring to our practice every one of us here tonight and we can feel really humbled by the complexity of expression among us much less in in the world and in the satipatthana the the buddha there's this or the refrain and it's important because it's it shows up 13 times so it's one it's something that we should pay attention to and the one of the things that um, appears in, in the in the refrain is this pointing to both the internal and the external contemplating our experience the importance of contemplating our experience both on the internal and the external level right so what does this mean the external well, there's a lot of debate about what the Buddha meant here, but it seems wise to consider the impact of, of our practice and be humbled by the impact of our unfinished business right? on the external envir environment and communities that we run in. And so taking refuge in Sangha at the core is about taking refuge in the karmic reality that we're swimming in. And I've, this has been so important that I've brought it forward many times, but to remember simply that every intentional action leaves an imprint, right? Every time the mind thinks, right, or we act or we move, it has some residue. Even if we don't know it in, in that moment, it leaves behind an imprint. And so taking refuge in Sangha is really being humbled and honoring, bowing to the reality of karma, the reality of cause and effect, that none of us escape, right? We're actually swimming our, in our interconnected web of causality. There's this you know, very well-known quote, this statement that Dr. Martin Luther King made, it seems to be really in line with the Buddhist teachings for me. He says, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men or people are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. 
Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And I love this so much, partly because Dr. King was a Christian, right? And a devoted spiritual seeker. And so I think that there's at, at the core of our spiritual inquiry is this reality of, of being interconnected. This reality of our of karmic, the karmic imprints of every moment and of our every intentional moment in our life and how that really shapes each of us in some way, either directly or indirectly. It's good to remember that, you know, the Buddha was all about pointing to re relating, why it's relating. And in talking about how the mind relates to all experience, that's one way of relating. And there's this, uh, a third of the Noble Eightfold Path is about our ethical training. That's about wise relating to each other. And in this, the third jewel, taking refuge in Sangha, that's about wise relating also. Wise relating and appreciating uh, all of the wise expressions among us taking refuge in sangha takes refuge in we take we go for refuge we understand cause and effect we also understand the value of planting seeds that are going to be beneficial right? and we can appreciate those moments of kindness and compassion and wisdom in the room when we're together, even in a Zoom room like this, we're not all talking like we might be if we were together in the same building before and after a program or something. But even here, we can appreciate the kind of skillfulness that we each that we each bring forward, right? And that is directly related to our cultivation, the cultivation of wise and beneficial habits. And we can really appreciate the uh, monastics that do this for their, you know, that take up robes and keep them on professionally, you might say, right? And they dedicate their entire life to living in community and practicing the Dhamma. And they do that so that they can carry the teachings forward to people like you and I who are living uh, living lay lives, working and taking care of families and we're in relationship with our monastic community. So part of taking refuge in Sangha is honoring this uh, lineage holders, spiritual practitioners, you know, who have really dedicated their whole lives and I, you know, I've talked about my uh, my friend, Venerable Nianika. Many of you know her. Um, she was a common grounder before she took ordinate, before she ordained and lived. Um, now she lives with the, uh, the Bhikkhunis at Aloka Vihara. And I have a regular conversation with her, usually weekly. And I've learned so much about the intricacies of being in relationship, the kind of care that our monastic community 
practices with each other, honoring and uh, re- reflecting back what they've heard from each other, you know, just in ordinary moments at, during their community meetings or uh, while engaged in anti-racism work or nonviolent communication and all the ways that they put this put this to work, put their training to work. And sometimes I know in my own naivete, I would imagine the monastic community just sitting in silence all day long, right? <laughs> But that's not that's not it. They're working and talking and living and in, and interacting, really practicing the ethical parts of the path, the parts of right action and right speech and and what it means to not throw each other out of their hearts. It's a beautiful has been a really beautiful model for me, right? To just receive the transmission of people who are just so committed to not throwing each other out of their hearts and aren't afraid to acknowledge the reactive habits of mind that are there that manifest right all part of taking refuge in sangha learning how to not throw each other out of our hearts and also be really humbled bow down to the full expression of humanity among us and the mistakes that we make I was um, reading a little bit and listening to some talks by the by some of the bhikkhunis, and I Ananda Bodhi was telling telling stories. One of the talks I listened to a couple of days ago, and she was uh, telling the story, and I was listening through the lens of wise relating, as we're practicing and what it means to go to the sangha for refuge and telling stories about the Buddha, the Buddha's awakening. This isn't part of what she said, but um, I'm going to link these two. One is that upon the Buddha's awakening, he, uh, you know, thought who he might after his big, big insights under the Bodhi tree, he thought, well, who he, he might tell. And the first, first thing that came to mind is, I'd like to tell my teachers. And his teachers were all deceased at the time, but I really appreciate the beauty of that intention to want to share one's learning with one's teachers. And it's such a different, you know, I, I was like, well, what, you know, do I think about that? Do I say, oh, this is a, I've learned something. Let me go tell my teacher. No, I usually have some neurotic relationship to, oh, I'm not, you know, worthy enough, or what do I have to teach my teachers, or it's not a kind of uplift, a delight in the learning, right, that just wants to be shared in relationship with someone, or with many someones whom I deeply respect and have a great appreciation and gratitude for, right, and just the purity of that intention felt real, has felt really moving to me, and then get, getting to what Aya Ananda Bodhi was saying, that uh, that, you know, these, the Buddhist teachings can be some of the, the maps, if you will, or the, the structures that the Buddha used to convey. The teachings can be quite linear, but the Buddha was also quite intuitive. 
right? And this is honored in the suttas too. And so there's some of some of the um, stories. This is one of she was telling that there's this the story of the of the Buddha, and he would um, he would often just be with his intuition and connect with where the Dhamma wants to flow, right? And have some intuitive sense that there might be someone in a particular town who's ready to hear the Dhamma. And he would walk for days to go to that town to offer some teachings. And often he would have some intuition about a particular person that was ready to hear the Dhamma. So there's this story about the Buddha walking for days to go to this town to offer some teachings and he gets there and the person that he thought was ready to hear the Dhamma wasn't there. And so a crowd gathers, they wait and wait and wait. And somebody's asked the Buddha, you know, uh, please, sir, are you ready to share the Dhamma? And he says something like, it's not time yet. And so they wait and wait and wait. And and they ask again, is it ready? Is it time yet? Will you please teach the Dhamma? And the Buddha says, it's not time yet, right? And eventually, after a lot of waiting, this person uh, arrives and this person had lost a cow and they were out trying to find, they finally got the cow, they got it corralled. He was quite late, he gets there, he's seated. And then, you know, somebody says the to the Buddha, is it, sir, will you please teach the Dhamma? And the Buddha says, it's not time yet. Because he recognizes that this person is exhausted and hungry, right? And when you're exhausted and hungry, it's really hard to take it in. And so often this, this is told by like the Buddha was so caring to realize and to be in relationship with human beings and to realize that this person was hungry and exhausted and he asked for someone to get him some food. And I also think about how what a beautiful expression of Dhamma it is to just take care of each other's basic needs. And I remember how uh, some of our teachers used to talk about their experience with Deepama, was this really wise Indian woman. And how often, you know, Joseph Goldstein will say that the first thing she often said was, how did you sleep and how did, are you hungry, right? Not something that is insignificant as communicated in the story about the Buddha's relationship to a, just a regular human being, someone he didn't know. So a beautiful way to practice taking refuge in Sangha is simply just to take care of each other, to be curious about the basic needs. And that means, you know, our friends and our family, but it certainly means doing what we can do to assure that all people have access to basic needs. And this felt like a really potent story to hear as I was reflecting on the times that we're living in and yeah, things, things are rocky, aren't they? <laughs> to say the least. Most people I know are 
yeah, having at least moments where they're burdened by life, right? Where I feel that too. A little bit tired, a little bit sluggish some moments, maybe a little depressed, a little anxious, maybe a lot depressed, a lot anxious, maybe a lot scared, maybe a lot angry. These are all just really normal. And so the, the, as, as in terms of taking care of basic needs, to be willing to not push, but just to take care of our mental health when we need to, or to get some rest when we need to, or to prioritize friendship when we need to, as an expression of our Dhamma practice. As an expression of what it means to go, to walk the path of going again and again to the Sangha for refuge. Community is complicated, isn't it? Going to the Sangha, going to each other, taking care of each other, offering something to each other might not feel like the easiest thing to do. I totally acknowledge that. I also, in moments when it's, it's a decent strategy, I heard this many years ago from Gil Fronstahl. He said something like, when I feel lonely, I try to give the gift that I need. So it's not the only strategy to go to the Sangha for refuge. It's not the only strategy when we feel, when we have a need, acknowledge a need, to give something away, to be generous with something. But it's a, it's a strategy that served me well. Right? When I feel lonely, to reach out and connect. When I feel high energy states, like anger, for example, to find some way to let that energy move in relationship with other beings, right? to go walk, to go for a run, to go to a protest, something that my body can be engaged with, to chant, sing loud, right? A beautiful act of, a beautiful expression of Dhamma. And when the heart feels overwhelmed, right? This is like this too for us sometimes when the heart feels overwhelmed and disconnected to really honor that and not push through it, just to feel it like, oh, this is what it, it feels like here. And then to be curious about different moments that the heart might not feel that way. Oh, there's a little bit of something bubbling up here, right? That's a way, a beautiful expression, an ethical expression of how we might take care of ourselves and each other. And so ethics, engaging in, harm, engaging in care, full of care, a heart that is full of care, the ethical parts of the path we, we often regard as um, har harmlessness, but it's also, oh, we might say, a positive expression of the ethical parts of the path are responding, cultivating the kind of habits of mind that can express themselves in a heart that's full of care. Right? 
And so as part of going to the Sangha for Refuge, we really honor the ethical, our ethical engagements, our engagement in harmlessness, our engagement in expressing care. And this is the perhaps the external expression of safety and protection that's offered by going for refuge. It's a way that we become a refuge for other people. It's the gift of fearlessness. We offer other people, you don't have to be afraid around me because I'm really going to practice being careful, expressing care, expressing harmlessness. You don't have to be afraid around me. And the Buddha encourages us many times to be a refuge for all beings. And I'd like to read these. I don't mean to embarrass you, Patrice, <laughs> but I'd like to read the precepts that you rewrote, if that's okay. You might have noticed in um, the weekly email a few weeks ago, and if you were here on Sunday morning, I, I read these then too. But I find these to be, um, Patrice rewrote the precepts in terms of engagement. So the precepts are these five training precepts, these five trainings around how to live an ethical life. And what I, I love, I love these. I've been um, looking at them quite often since Patrice shared them with the community. And I, I love them not just for what they say, but be, because Patrice was doing her job as a practitioner, being creative and internalizing the practice to be really responsive to the moment that we're living in. Right? This is what we're asked to do. When we take refuge in Sangha, we really get curious about what that means right now. Right? This is how the interest in mental health and self-care and taking care of each other's basic needs arose to the top of the mind, right? Because in this way of maturing, deepening, maturing in practice, deepening into refuge, then the kind of creativity that makes practice make sense rises to the surface. So these five precepts, Patrice, do you want to read them since you're here? They're yours. <laughs> no, that, that's fine. Shall we go right ahead? Okay. So the first precept is the taking, undertaking the training to not kill, to not harm other beings. And so number one, Patrice says, do not kill. We begin with the intention of not harming self or other, even as we engage with hurt and trauma. Just let that land. The second precept is offered by the Buddha is to undertake the training to not take that which isn't given freely. So number two, do not steal. We resolve not to take anything that is not our own, including any projections that we may think another holds. And number three, the Buddha asks us to train and not misusing our sexual energies. Number three, do not misuse sexual energies. We take responsibility for monitoring and working with our own energies, 
not letting them undermine or overpower our engagement with others. And number four, the Buddha asks us to undertake the training to not tell mistruths, to not lie. So number four, do not lie. We practice deep listening, even as we speak our truths, acknowledging the limits of our own understanding. And number five, the Buddha asks us to take up the training to not misuse substances that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So number five, do not misuse substance. We restrain ourselves from acting on any impulse that fosters carelessness in either or both senses of the word, being heedless and being heartless. Just really letting the word settle into the heart. And using this example as an expression of how, you know, one person related wisely to this moment and to the being what it means to be in a relationship and take it as an opportunity for us to find our own way, each of us. So thank you for your patient attention tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.